Well, good morning, Hope. And I tell you, um, I had no idea that I would be so moved uh, during that baptism. I, I do hope that at some point you get to hear some of the story of, um, of these two that, that have uh, really gone through so much individually and, and now together as a couple, uh, just pulling together and um, just seeing someone take that step, publicly acknowledging and making that stand that they uh, have decided to follow Jesus. And both of these two have been following Jesus for, for some time. But this, this big step today of be, being baptized uh, was just so incredible, so important, so beautiful. Um, and their courage to, you know, COVID's a good reason to keep putting it off. <laughs> uh, and they just both knew that they wanted to do this. Um, so I'm so proud, so honored by them. Whew, okay. Um, hey, Chris, are we, are we good to go on the recording? Yes, sir, of course we are. Thank you, sir. Um, so we are in a series of messages that started a while back, and um, we started working our way through what is commonly known as the Beatitudes, which is a teaching of Jesus that was given early in his ministry. It's out of Matthew chapter 5, and we decided to begin by just going through each of these verses one by one, and so we got to the third one, blessed are the meek, and... Here we are on our third or fourth week of talking about that, just that particular verse. But let's just read these first three out loud together. It'll be up here on the screen. Blessed, blessed are the poor. In, let's get it up on the screen. And there we go. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. And so the past few weeks, we've just been digging into this blessed are the meek verse, which at first I thought, well, this is going to take no time. This is maybe worth even half a sermon. And here as the, we've gotten more and more into this, it has unpacked and shown us different things that really are displayed all throughout the ministry of Jesus. Now, what I want us to remember with the story I'm about to go to here from Luke chapter 9 is remember that this here, this takes place at the start of Jesus' ministry. Uh, this is at the very beginning. It's what he launches out with. And although then for the next three years, he's been living, demonstrating this to his disciples, what true meekness, what true power actually looks like, you know, they had this kind of hard time getting it through their thick skulls, right? Which is an encouragement to me because I have a hard time getting teachings like this through my thick skull. Can anyone say amen? Anyone with me? You're saying, amen, you know I struggle with this, or amen, you too, or somewhere in the middle? Okay. So, three years later, he's been living, he's been demonstrating this. Listen to what happens. This is on his way to Jerusalem where he's going to be crucified. So this is pretty near the end. He's pretty much showing them all he's going to show them, right? Um, he and his disciples get to a, a Samaritan village on their way, but the, the people in the village finding out you know, Jesus is going to Jerusalem and we Samaritans don't support the whole Jerusalem thing, we rejected Jesus. So they reject Jesus. They say, nope, you guys can't come here at all. So Luke 9 verse 54 says, when the disciples, James and John, by the way, does anybody know the nickname of the disciples, James and John? Thunder. Sons of thunder. You're about to see another reason why, right? They saw this rejection by the Samaritans. They asked Jesus, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to destroy them? There you go. 
But what's it say? If you, if I'm, I don't even put the verse up there, but what does Jesus do? Anyone know? They use, they use the word, he rebuked them. So he doesn't just say, nah, it's okay, guys. He like strongly scolds them and says, no, Jesus here, who he could have, like these guys now have seen his power demonstrated, right? They know he could do this, but Jesus demonstrates what we have come to understand as meekness, which is power under control. That's what the word meekness means. Now, can you imagine in this episode here what this would have looked like to the disciples who thought we were on our way to Jerusalem, we're finally going to take over the government, we're going to rebel, kick out Rome, all this stuff, right? When the disciples hear Jesus rebuke them and say, no, we're not going to burn the village here, they must have been thinking, well, Jesus, I mean, come on, Jesus, this is not the way to build a kingdom, right? If we do this, we do this meek thing, we are going to get overthrown. Like, Jesus, you can't be a Boy Scout here. That'll never work. That kind of power could never rule. Which, to me, it just sounds like even after three years of hearing, blessed are the meek, and watching it then lived out, they still didn't think that Jesus knew what he was talking about. Right? Jesus, that's not the way it works in this world. You've got to do battle, and you've got to fight to win and get your way. That's how it works. Which, again, had to be so frustrating to to Jesus, right? But the truth is, nearly 2,000 years later, and all through church history, we keep repeating that same mistake. Over and over, we who call ourselves Christians, who say that we obey the following, uh, we obey the teachings of Jesus, we so often act like Jesus doesn't really know what he's talking about. Because we, me, I quickly adopt the methods and strategies of the kingdom of this world to try to get my way to win our arguments, to fight our battles in the culture, in the world we live in. I'm going to use the methods of the kingdom of this world. I'm going to shout louder because, I mean, they're shouting, so I'm going to shout. That gives me the right. I have the right to shout because they're shouting, right? If they're going to do this to me, I'm going to do the same back to them. This is how it works in the kingdom of this world. I mean, come on, Jesus. How in the world are we going to win if we don't demand our rights? And so we rewind again. Three years before the Samaritan episode, 2,000-some years before where we are right now, where Jesus first taught them the reality of the way things work in the kingdom of God, which is the way of God, the story of God, his way of living that he invites us into, how's it work in his? Because again, after three years, they still didn't get it. Three years! And I hear myself say, after three years, they didn't get it. And I have to go, wow, after decades of following Jesus, much more than three years, I still don't get it. And then looking back at the church history that I want to criticize, for good reason, some of the things done in the name of God, we still don't get it. We keep screwing this up. See, what I have been noticing is that it's so easy for us Um, throughout history, who call ourselves followers of Jesus, to act like Jesus doesn't really know what he's talking about, right? When he says, blessed are the meek, because we still operate by the methods of the kingdom of this world. 
We do it all over the place. We do it in politics. We do it in our families. We do it in our relationships. We do it with our spouses. We do it with our kids. We operate that way with our coworkers. We opt for power over, which is how it works in the kingdom of the world. And we miss what Jesus meant when he declares, blessed are the meek. And I'm just gonna, I'm not gonna get deep into this. So if you think Doug said blah, 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 fine. Uh, send me an email, don't get confused here because I'm trying to keep this short. But when I think about how we handle some of the issues um, that are in front of us as a, a, we'll call it the church in America, how generally, by and large, Christians in the U.S. have taken up different issues, you know. Um, I wonder about, you know, all the energy going into things like, you know, fighting gay marriage or abortion or demanding that the Ten Commandments are put back up in public buildings. And by the way, I don't wonder that those things are issues. They're issues. They are issues. I'm not saying they're not issues. They are issues. I just wonder how the church goes about addressing those issues. I wonder how we're doing it. And that's where I get really concerned because what I have to notice that I have done and do when I think about those issues um, is it's real easy to grasp for power. It's real easy for church leaders and the church to play the political game. It's real easy for the church to participate in whipping people into a frenzy of fear. It's very easy to do fights on social media. And when I look at it, I sometimes go, ugh, I've done that. I've been involved in that. I've been a party to it. And you know what? It doesn't look like rightly ordered power. It doesn't look like meekness. It doesn't look like power under control, which is another definition for meekness that we've been looking at. What it looks like when I look at how the church at large, in general, not everybody, but much of the way that it just seems like we've operated is that it's raw, ungodly power. It looks like fearful control. And that, my friends, we have to name as disordered power that is not descriptive of the way things are advanced in the kingdom of God, the way that Jesus says that it will be advanced. That's not how it works because powering up, and now I'm talking about in families, in workplaces, in politics, all of it, powering up, yelling louder, giving way to fear in order to advance any agenda, even a good agenda, is a pursuit of the kingdom of this world. And the kingdom of God, which Jesus brought and proclaimed and said, there's the way to walk and live, invites us into the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of God don't work together. You cannot get kingdom of God results with kingdom of this world methods. And so for one more week, we're gonna look at this teaching, blessed are the meek. Blessed are the meek. Now, in my study this week, um, I found another illustration that kind of adds a layer to this meek thing that we've been tracking with. Uh, is a fascinating word study for the Greek word meek, which we've looked at before. Uh, it said praos. Um, but the, the reason that matters is it was borrowed from the military, and it relates to horse training. We've talked about that, but I found an even deeper layer to this. Here's the quote from this word study. Uh, it says, the Greek army would find the wildest horses in the mountains and bring them in. After months of training, they would then sort the horses into four different groups. Um, The first group were 
I discarded, so I guess they were turned loose. That's the first group. The second group, um, they were trained and made useful for bearing burdens, so like a pack horse or, you know, towing a cart. Um, the third group were more useful, so they were used for riding and just kind of ordinary duty. That's first, second, and third one. And then the fourth one, the fewest, the smallest group of all the horses that I guess graduated, um, they came out as war horses. So top of the class, best of the best. Now here's where it gets really interesting, to me anyway. When a horse passed that phase four, level four, small group war horse designation, its state was described now as prouse, which is meek. That war horse, that's where the word comes from. The war horse is meek. That's meekness. The war horse was now a powerful being yet under control, strength under authority. See, this meek horse, this war horse, uh, never ceased to be strong, right? Jesus doesn't call us to stop having any strength. Uh, the war horse never ceased to be passionate or determined. And by the way, Jesus doesn't call us. That's not what he means when he says, blessed are the meek. Don't be strong or passionate or determined. No, it learned to bring its tendency or its nature under control. It was controlled. Um, it gave up being a wild, unruly, out-of-control, rebellious horse, a, a, a war horse, learned to bring that power under control, and now a war horse would respond to the slightest touch of the rider. It would stand firm even in the face of cannon fire without bolting. This war horse would now also thunder aggressively into battle, and it would stop at a whisper. It was now meek. Meek. That's where the word comes from, from the same era where Jesus taught this, blessed are the Meek, because meek is not, as we've talked about already, meek is not weak. <laughs> meek is not passive. And think about how this relates to you and me, this, this metaphor here. When you and I come into relationship with Jesus, when you said yes to Jesus, I want to follow you, Jesus, we declare, Jesus, you are Lord. Uh, we desire to follow you, Jesus. We're going to become your disciples. That's what a follower of Jesus is. We're a disciple of Jesus. And so a disciple enters into this pathway of learning from Jesus the best way to live life, which is his way. So like an untamed horse, we entered into his training program, learning to trust his leading because it's not right away, right? We learn to trust and discern his voice because that takes some time. We, we learn to understand and look for his guidance. As followers of Jesus, we learn to trust him even when he calls us to stuff that seems to be upside down, that seems to be backwards to the ways that we've done life and that the whole world does life around us. Now, real quick, I want to mention this. Unlike, this is very unlike that horse training program, um, when you and I say yes to following Jesus, when we give our lives to him, unlike the four-phase horse training thing I talked about, he doesn't just evaluate us for a few months and then turn us loose if we don't show much promise, Okay. <laughs> Like, Jesus sticks with it, right? He's leading us, teaching us, wooing us for life. And aren't you glad that he doesn't just discard us if we don't get it after a few months? Anybody besides me? Like, I would be totally screwed if that was the criteria. Like, ah, Doug, you're just not getting this, right? Um, if it was me being the horse trained by the Greek military, 
I would have landed in the glue factory a long time ago. So, but Jesus is not like that. He's patient. He knows that it takes many of us a long time to learn to trust him. So he patiently, lovingly, but firmly directs us in the path to follow him. He, he says, this is the way to live life. Trust when I teach this. If you don't understand it, that's okay. Ask questions, but trust that I know what I'm talking about when I teach you how to trust other people or to love other people, how to treat other people. When, I, when Jesus teaches us how to walk in humility, how to love and serve, we learn to trust him because it feels really backwards. It feels very awkward at first because it runs very counter to the way that we think things are supposed to work in the world that we live in. Let me just take an example of, of the difference between how Jesus would say it and direct us and how the world would say something and direct something and how different they are. Uh, for example here, how does this world say that we need to treat money, right? You guys go ahead. What's our relationship with money like according to the world? Hoard, what more money, more power. Make as much as you can. Money equals success. Yes, what else? The person with the most toys wins. Well, that might be true. Um, that was a joke. That was a, thank you for laughing up here. Thank you. So that's the way our world treats it, right? Take care of you. Greed is good. Go into debt. Live beyond your means. That's how the kingdom of this world would say we are to relate to money, right? Now, how does Jesus say that we're supposed to relate to money? He doesn't call it evil, by the way. But what, what, how does Jesus say Give it away. Give it away. <laughs> give it away. Yeah. What else? Lay up your treasure in heaven. Yes. And avoid debt. Right. Yeah. This is very counter. Can you see how differently the kingdom of God works compared to what the kingdom of this world says to do? We're supposed to trust God to be our source, to to remember who our source is, that it all comes from him, which is very hard to do. And by the way, it doesn't matter whether you have a little bit of money or a lot of money. Some people think, well, I have enough money, then I'll be able to trust God. I promise you, if we don't learn it, when things are scarce or tight or thin, it will be just as hard or harder to learn if we ever do have provision that's abundant. But the two ways that, that we have to choose from are very different right? Following Jesus or following the way of this world, um, it's very different. Many so-called financial experts would roll their eyes at the teachings of Jesus. I have a friend whose father-in-law is a multi, multi, multi-millionaire, pretty close to a billionaire, and um, father-in-law is not a believer. He said to my friend, um, asked him about, you know, money and what did he do with his money and and my friend said, why? And my friend is fairly wealthy, but nowhere near the wealth of his uh, father-in-law and said, uh, um, well, I, the first thing we do is that we tithe right off the top. And he's like, what's that? He goes, well, we give 10% away to, to the church that we're a part of. And his father-in-law's eyes got giant and said, 10%, are you expletive crazy? I mean, he flipped out. And this is a guy who knows what he's talking about when it comes to money. He's got multi-millions of it because it's two different systems and it doesn't make sense in the way of the kingdom of God, but it does lead to freedom 
Because as Jesus followers, whether it's money or sex or power, whatever it is, we have to trust that Jesus knows what he's talking about. We allow him to lead us. We trust that Jesus really is Lord. We believe that he knows what he's talking about. When he says crazy things like we've been studying here in the Beatitudes and we'll keep studying, things like blessed are the meek, we scratch our heads because nobody talks that way in our world. But because we trust Jesus, we go, all right, I'm going to have to take a deeper look and, and try to understand because I believe, finally, that, that, that what Jesus teaches, these are clues uh, about what it means to walk a path that leads to the life that he promises us. It leads to abundant life. And it looks very different than the ways that the kingdom of this world say we are to relate. Now, when Jesus says, blessed are the meek, remember, he's not trying to get us to be passive. And that's one of the reasons I wanted to hit this for another week is that Jesus is not saying that we are to be passive. Being meek is not a call to be a pushover. Listen, friends, you are powerful. And that's a good thing. God made you in his image to be a powerful person, to have capacity and influence, to he's given you gifts and skills and you matter. Like you get to go into this world and, and make things happen. You do. That's part of how he designed you in his image. But to just do that, making stuff happen without being under the direction and control and, and, and guidance of the Holy Spirit, then we are like that wild stallion or horse that we may be destructive. We may just be out there making stuff happen and it may lead to our own hurt or the hurt of others because you are a powerful person, right? Um, you have influence. And so following Jesus means that we take the power that he has given us, your influence, your gifts, your capacity, your skills, you take those things and you align it. We align it to the way of Jesus. And the phrase that's been coming back to me on that is rightly ordered power. That's what rightly ordered power looks like. Because there's a disordered power that's way easier to live in. So we have disordered power and we have rightly ordered power. Here's how I know when I'm sliding into the disordered power realm. Um, disordered power, ready, seeks to control others. Disordered power in any realm seeks to manipulate, to force, to dominate, to crush someone in order to get your way. It's disordered because it does not work um, for the best of the other person. It does not honor them as human beings created in God's image. See, friends, we don't want to control others. Whenever you catch yourself trying to control someone or manage an outcome, remember this. We're not supposed to control other people. It's not healthy. It's not godly. See, controlling others is not the path of a follower of Jesus. That's part of what blessed are the meek leads us to. Because by the way, when it comes to control, Who's the only person that you can control? Yeah, yourself. Like the only person I can control is myself, and that's on a good day, okay? <laughs> right? This is what self-control means. A great definition that I heard on self-control, I think it was from Danny Silk, said, self-control means I tell myself what to do, and I do it, right? It's hard to do, right? I tell myself what to do, and I listen to myself. That is self-control. 
control because our job's not to control other people or have power over other people. Our job is to control ourselves. Now, we can operate in disordered power. We can try to use our power as a parent or as a boss or as a teacher or as a family member to try and control someone else. And by the way, it might even work for a little while. You might be able to control someone else in your family for a while. You may get, um, we'll call it compliance, right? They comply. And when you're an exhausted dad like I used to be and sometimes still am, that's, that's enough. Fine, just compliance is all I want, right? I caught myself doing that lots as a parent. But the problem is that is disordered power I'm trying to control someone else, and while I may succeed in getting compliance, um, we will not win the heart. We will not connect to the heart, and healthy, honoring relationships are about a heart connection. Jesus modeled this for us. He doesn't attempt to control us. He doesn't. He invites you to follow. He doesn't attempt to control. See, rightly ordered power, when we look at how Jesus lived out power in relationships. It's about trusting in the power of love to woo the heart, to invite people. And and isn't that what God did? It's totally what God did. Humankind rebelled in the Garden of Eden, and God could have come back here and shoot, just swept the the plate, started over. He could have won by a sheer act of, of power. He could have crushed humankind for rebelling, but instead, instead, he pursued us. He built relationship and invited his people to get to know him, to have a relationship where he could have used sheer power to force the issue, but instead he pursued us. In fact, friends, God himself is this example for us of meekness. He is an example of rightly ordered power, power under control. And he invites us to live the same way. When he declares, blessed are the meek, it's something he's been doing. (laughs) He's saying, blessed are those who live with the power that I've bestowed on them, their position, their their title, their gifts, all of it. But instead of, of living with that power in a way to crush someone, instead of manipulating with that power, instead of forcing or controlling, they live with their power under control. They live in rightly ordered power. Maybe a way to say it would be, blessed are those who have learned the wisdom of wooing the heart with love instead of forcing compliance with disordered power. Now, I want to get real practical here for a few minutes. Um, In our culture, I think the whole point of, of power and being powerful people, but the whole disordered power thing that's so tempting and confusing, the whole point uh, of wanting power, the reason we try to figure out how to have power over others is because when you are powerful, then you get other people to serve you, right? You get to call the shots. You get to be the boss. You get to kind of you know, throw your weight around. You get to be in control. Now, I'm just going to get in trouble here, but what does this look like for husbands and wives? What does this look like for husbands and wives? And I don't have a half hour to go deep into this, so forgive me if I miss an angle that I should have covered. Um, I'm going to give you my best shot here. 
Um, Anthony Campolo in his book, The Power Delusion, which is a very good book. Uh, it's years ago, but it's still very appropriate. He, he talked about a time when he was doing a, a family life seminar in a church. And near the end of the seminar, there was a Q&A time and someone stood up. It was a man, of course, stood up and said, Mr. Campolo, you still haven't answered the most important question relative to marriage, which is, who is supposed to be the head of the house? Right? In, order, in other words, right, who gets to be the boss, who gets to be served, who gets to decide, who gets to be the, the head, and how many Westerns, Westerners understand what the head means in the scripture we'll look at in a moment here. But here's what Campolo responded with, brilliant guy. He said, sir, to ask that question at all reveals that you don't get it at all. The feeling the place got really quiet after he said that, right? <laughs> really quiet. And then Campolo went on and said this, if you understood Jesus, you wouldn't even need to ask that question. The question wouldn't occur to you because the question you're asking right now is the same question that the mother of James and John asked in Matthew chapter 20. You can read the whole thing later in Matthew 20, by the way. But um, what happened is that uh, the, the sons of thunder, their mom wanted the two of them to be the top dogs. So she says to Jesus, hey, will you put these two in charge, one on your left and one on your right? They can be seated with you and have that authority. The other disciples find out about this and get really ticked. So Jesus says to all of them in Matthew 20, verse 25, he's basically, he's saying here, it's the Gentiles, you guys. It's the people who don't understand the kingdom of God. They're the ones that play the power games. They're the ones that ask questions like who gets to be the head, who's the greatest among us. It's the, the Gentiles who lord it over and exercise disordered power and authority, but that's not the way it's supposed to be among you. That's my paraphrase. I'll read directly here now from verse 26. Not so with you. That's how they do it, but not so with you. Instead, ready? Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the son of man. That's his name for himself. So just as I, Jesus, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I think Jesus is saying here, whoever wishes to become great, you really want that, guys? Is that what you really want? You want to be great? You want to be headship? You want, is that what this is about? Let's, let's talk about what headship would look like. Um, it would look like here's the path to being the master. You become the servant of all. That's what it looks like. You become the servant of all. You stay the servant of all. By the way, I don't know what happens next in this episode with Tony Campolo, but I thought it was interesting that he answered them with the, answered the guy with that particular scripture, and I think it was a brilliant answer. Um, but as much as I like his answer, I know that maybe some of us are going, okay, okay, yeah, what do we do with that Ephesians chapter 5 verse that the guy was actually probably referring to, where it says, these fun words, um, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, wives, Submit yourselves to your husbands as you do to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, also shall wives submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave his life for her. There's more. That enough right there is to stir the pot and understandably tick people off because it has become disordered in its interpretation. It's been disordered and mostly taught by men, <laughs> right? And my guess is the guy that asked the question originally of Tony Campolo, he's probably thinking, 
Like, you know that verse, you know that one right there. That verse means in my mind that I get to be the head, that I get to be the boss. And the reason that I'm asking you this question in front of everyone, Tony Campolo, is so that you will tell my wife that <laughs> because she won't let me. So. Now, again, I have a long teaching on that passage that I'm not going to get into, but I just want to point out something that gets missed every time I've heard it taught, mostly by men, um, that it means that men are the boss. Um, funny, it's always the men that teach the passage this way. What verse led the whole deal? Verse 21. Put it back here on the screen. Verse 21. Verse 20. There we coming. We're, we're working on it. Verse 21, I'll just, spoiler alert right here. It says this. Before it says husbands, wives, anything, it says this. Let's read this out loud together. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So the first thing Paul does here is he says, hey, everyone, submit to each other. Guess what that means? Husbands submit to wives, too. Wives to husband, yeah, I don't know why he had to repeat it to the ladies, but he did, but he said to submit to your wives, husbands. Um, and then he gets real specifics about husbands and wives. This is a mutual submission. Then he gets to the husband, and especially in that culture where the men were the boss and wives were not valued, he says what is even more powerful in that day, he says, husbands, you are to take the same path of Jesus to sacrifice yourself, to lay your life down just like Jesus did. In a culture and in a day where women had no rights, were not valued, just like women in many places of the world are still not valued today, the Bible says to them and to us, you fellas, you will treat her like a treasure, not a thing to be owned or discarded, like a treasure. This is already countercultural, <laughs> very different than the kingdom of the world, the version that they lived in back there. Ephesians 5.25, he continues, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave his life for her. So you wanna start talking about who gets to lead, right? Well, if anybody, the one who serves that way like Jesus did, that's who's leading. That's the path to rightly ordered power in the kingdom of God, whether it's in our families, our places of business, our churches, so followers of Jesus, you, you want to be in charge, you want to be the boss in some realm? Lay your life down. Lay your life down. By the way, um, in our house, Heidi and I, we have never had an argument about who is the boss, right? It's a moot point. Like, I'm not sure how that comes up in a practical way at all with Jesus at the center. Um, we've learned to submit to each other. And if we really had to press it, who's the boss in our house, right? Hello? Yeah, you guys know it. Heidi's, she wins. Yeah. But what our contest would be if there is one is not who's the boss, not who's in control. It's who loves and serves. And more of the time. It's Heidi. She doesn't think about this or argue about it. She just follows Jesus. And I'm sad when I hear couples that have this argument or even think you got to bring it up. Like, ooh, what? 
And friends, this, you keep, if you keep reading the passage in, into Ephesians uh, 6 here, um, it applies now. He keeps talking about this mutual submission thing, and, and we divide it into chapters, but it wasn't that way back in that day. He just read all this. This stuff was all just a letter to the, to the church there, and, and he talks about submission. Really, this applies to parents. This applies to masters. He talks to slaves. We defer to one another. We don't grasp or manipulate to get control or to power over others. This is how we relate in the kingdom of God to brothers and sisters in Christ. And when we are submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, we are serving one another out of reverence for Christ. And then the question of who's the boss in any context, it's a moot point. Grasping for title and position and recognition and authority, it falls to the side in the kingdom of God context. Whether that's our home or our workplace or our church, the kingdom of God, the question there is not is not, how can I be master? How can I be the boss? How can I be given a better title? The question is, how can I serve? How can I love? And I promise you that our culture and in some of the ways that we are wired, we will look at that and go, that looks so weak. But I am here to tell you that if we trust that Jesus means what he says he means and he knows what he's talking about, that loving and serving is the actual pathway to actual kingdom of God power. It's rightly ordered power. Blessed are the meek. I'm going to skip ahead as the worship team comes. Um, we're going to move into communion in a moment. But can I tell you just one more way that this meekness this power under control, this rightly ordered power where, where this actually works. Um, and for me, it's very personal of how that kind of power worked on me and probably on many of you here. Let me kind of explain here. What, what captured my heart and drew me to Jesus was not that he was just this all-powerful God that could crush me like a bug, so I better repent, how many of you have seen that face of God painted, by the way? Like he's, he's very powerful. You're going to be in trouble. If you don't want to go to hell, you better repent. Anybody seen that, had that presented? You've heard that message before? Yeah. Um, I mean, I went to church camp almost every summer. Anybody? I mean, I hope they get to do church camp again someday. But anybody, summer campers growing up? Yeah, we went to church camp, and in the variety of church camp I went to, there were different experiences that were good and bad, but there was almost every year at least a message somewhere, if not in the front by the speaker, then with one of the camp counselors where I would hear this message along the lines of, um, Doug, you are just a worm, and you better turn or burn. You better get right, or you're going to get left. Um, but, Doug, if you raise your hand, if you come forward, if you accept Jesus, you won't burn. You'll go to heaven. And here's the deal. I raised my hand. I went forward. I prayed the prayer a thousand times. I repented over and over. I rededicated my life until my rededicator was worn out because I didn't want to go to hell. I didn't want God to be mad at me. And I suppose some of the sermons I heard on God's holiness and wrath, um, quote, scared the hell out of me, but uh, it didn't capture my heart ever, ever. Can I tell you what captured my heart? <laughs> it was when I discovered that this God, who I still believed was so powerful that he could crush me if he wanted to, but he didn't. 
Instead, he did the most amazing thing. I still can't even comprehend this, but he, according to Philippians 2, emptied himself, gave up his place in heaven apart from the suffering of earth. He comes to earth. He takes on the form of a human, not just a human. He becomes a servant. He becomes a slave. He didn't come for us to serve and please him. He came to give his life, to ransom me from fear, from sin, and from the evil one. And he did it for love. And that, that's what got me. The love of God, the power of the love of God is what pulled me in and won my heart. And for my entire life, I'm his. I belong to Jesus now. He is Lord See, what, what, what he won my heart with was not just this absolute stunning power, but I realize now that it was a meekness that demonstrated itself in love. See, now that is powerful. That is powerful. But I bet it didn't look powerful when he did it. When he came and on the night he was betrayed, and he gets given over to his captors when he could have called 10,000 angels to destroy the world, to set him free. He didn't. Friends, that's love. To lay down his power for you, for me, to lead with sacrifice, to have rightly ordered power that leads with love. And so this morning, I wanna take that imagery, that picture of his power with us to the communion table. Honey, could you grab me? Can I have one of those there? Thank you. If you'll grab your elements in front of you. One of the powerful things about communion and why I believe Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me, is to remember not just a ritual or a thing that we do because we do it, it's the first Sunday of the month or some churches do it every week. It's, it's not just for that. It's, it's a reminder of his love that he poured himself out for you, for me, that he did it for love. He didn't have to, but he did it for love. And so on the night he was betrayed, while his, his friends were sitting around the table still thinking, oh my gosh, this is it. We're gonna take over. We are gonna crush the Romans. We are gonna be the new superpower. Woohoo! they still didn't get it. Three years later, they still didn't get it. Jesus in his meekness finally says, all right, now I'm going to show you what this looks like by doing this. And he took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Take and eat and do this in remembrance of me. Let's take and let's eat together.
confusing as that had to be. <laughs> it says that after supper, he took the cup, and it would have been a common cup that they all drank out of because there was no COVID. <laughs> that was supposed to be funny, sorry. I picture Jesus holding up this cup that says the scripture says that he blessed it and when he had given thanks he blessed it and he said this blood this cup is the new covenant which is in my blood which will be poured out for the forgiveness of the sins of many take and drink and do this in remembrance of me let's do that together Will you stand with me? Jesus, we are so grateful for your goodness, for your sacrifice, for your love. Jesus, we are so grateful that at the cross, you didn't just say you loved us, you demonstrated it by laying down your rights, your power, by pouring it all out, and you now call us to follow you. I pray that you would move in our hearts even this moment as we sing the closing song.